Father, we gather before your throne and before your cross, and we posture ourselves before your word now. Father, we know that the word is Christ. So, Lord, we pray that as we began our series through John, that you would help us week after week to behold Jesus Christ. And that through beholding, the word would take shape and form in our lives and the word would become flesh in and through us. Help us to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we began our long, if you guys have been with us, you'll know, we'll be in the Gospel of John, this long series through the Gospel of John. We'll wrap this up in 2023. But, we're going to have breaks in between. Uh, we'll have, I think, a 12 to 16 uh, week break in between because it was so weird when we broke up the text. Jesus' death and resurrection landed right around Christmas time of 2022. Just so weird. So what we're going to do is we'll, we'll take various breaks. We'll have a senior pastor series, congregational series, Advent series in 2022. Uh, and then we'll pick up John 15 in January of 2023. And right when we get to his death and resurrection, it will be Easter season. So, so we lined it up that way. So um, I know some of you have decided to leave our church now. <laughs> but please stick with us as we go through John. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. And that is John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. You'll learn more about John as we journey through his Gospel. Now the main purpose of John's Gospel is clearly stated in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, the beautiful thing about John is that there's not too many books of the Bible where the author tells you, here's my main reason, my main goal, my main purpose for writing. But John, he does this for us. In John 20, 30 to 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning these particular signs, seven in particular, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John's purpose for his entire book is to demonstrate, number one, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the divine Son of God. And number two, that if you entrust your life to Christ, you will find true life. And that's true spiritual life. And what John does when he's talking about these signs is that he structures his narrative around seven miracles of Christ. Along the way, we'll cover all seven of these miracles. And these seven miraculous signs, each sign is meant to draw you in to the divine nature of Christ. And with each pericope of his narrative, John draws you, yes, into Christ. You might get annoyed that John is repetitive. As an exegete, as a Bible student, it gets annoying sometimes when he repeats himself. He writes his paragraphs in circles. He is the light, light he is, you know, kind of like Yoda-like, right? He goes over and over and over again. But you'll realize that what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw you deep. He's trying to draw you into Christ. He wants you to understand. As one theologian puts it, and I paraphrase, John invites us to look again and again 
into the human face of Jesus of Nazareth until the awesome knowledge comes over us, wave upon terrifying wave, you keep beholding Christ until you and I realize that we're actually looking into the human face of the living God. Now that's amazing because unlike the other gospel writers, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't see any birth narrative. You don't see as much of a historical layout of Jesus' life. Instead, John jumps right in to say, Jesus is the Son of God. And he proves to show you that over and over again. It's like he's taking you up a mountain each time and says, I want you to behold Christ. I want you to behold Christ and I want you to see him yet again and again and again as the Son of God. Our aim then for preaching through John is so that you might behold Christ and that you might have life. That by beholding Christ, you would, you would have a life that's transformed. You see, early on in your Christian life, or for those of you who are new to Christianity, it's easy to see the Christian life as Jesus changing your life. Yes, that's right and that's true. But if we don't behold Christ deeply, we will inevitably see the Christian life as a means of solving our problems. Especially here in the West, where, yeah, there are subtle forms of persecution and maybe more and more, but cancel culture aside, Christianity, it's easy to be a Christian. You can be a Christian in the United States and not lose your life. There are parts of the United States where there's so much cultural Christianity in the Bible Belt where you could just say you're a Christian and just go around and live and just do the Sunday attendance thing, and that would be your Christianity. So many times... The Christian life for many is simply a transaction. It's a transaction that conversion is this. You believe in a message. You believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's it. It's just a transaction. And God willing that when you die, you'll go to heaven and not hell, but you go on and live your life however you want. You add Jesus into your calendar. But when trials come in your life, that's when you pick up the phone and call Jesus. When, you, when it's convenient for you, you go to church. When the church offers programs for you and your family, you go to church. But when life gets hard, then Christianity doesn't really flow into your, your everyday life. You see, Christianity, the Christian life, is much more than conversion. It's much more than a transaction. Yes, God forgives us in exchange for our belief, but that's only one aspect of the gospel. Conversion... If you understand where John goes, then by chapter 3, he gets into it. He says, you must be born again. And being born again is not just a transaction. Being born again means you have an entire new life in Christ. So if you are new to Christianity or if you're seeking Christianity, then we want you to see through the gospel of John that Jesus wants to change your life. He doesn't just want to fix your problems. He doesn't just want to be added to your schedule. He doesn't want you to just have a transaction. He wants to transform your entire life, and you won't like it. It's painful, okay? You need to die to yourself. But for those of you who are already Christians, then the Gospel of John challenges us that transformation means that the Word is not just knowledge. The Word became flesh. The Word must become flesh in us. That it's not just about changing your behavior, but Jesus wants to change your heart. And he wants you to go deeper and deeper and deeper into him. So today we begin our journey through John. 
And I want to start us by looking at Genesis chapter 1. So if you have God's Word, you can turn there. I'll have it on the screen for you as well. The title of this morning's message and next week's is The Dawn of a New Genesis, part 1. Next week will be part 2. We're going to spend two weeks going through John verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The Dawn of a New Genesis, part 1. And what I hope that you will see is that Jesus Christ is the divine mediator of the first Genesis. He is the source of all creation. This same mediator of the first Genesis came to reveal himself in human flesh in order to mediate a new Genesis. We're going to spend two weeks unpacking this. So let's look at Genesis 1. I want you to notice a few things. I'll read to you the first four verses of Genesis 1. This is the beginning of the Bible. And I'll point out a few things as background, and then we'll go into John 1, and you'll see some of the same parallels. Notice how Moses begins Genesis 1. He says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form or, and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. So a few things that's critical for us to understand. First, notice in Genesis 1 that here it doesn't tell you why immediately. It just tells you, look, there is a God, and He created everything. But everything that God creates is perfect and good. God is light. In Him there is no darkness. Now darkness exists, but God is light. God creates everything that God forms is good. But it says in verse 2, the earth was was without form and void. The Hebrew is tohu vavohu. We don't know what happened, okay? But formless is not like our God. Our God creates everything he breathes into there is form. This word form, formless, it's telling you that something exists. Something exists called the earth, and it's matter that's disorganized. Void can be translated as wasteland. So basically, it's this disorganized matter, and darkness is never of God, right? And so we don't know what happened, but it says the earth was there. He created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the deep refers to the waters, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so I contend, and I hope that you see this, as the first creation, we don't know how or why, the first creation was actually an act of redemption. And every single time God redeems, it's not through the Spirit, the Father plans, but it's through who? who? What's his name? What's his name? Jesus. So it makes sense that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and all things were created through the Word. Because if you're going to redeem, you need to go through Christ. He's always been Redeemer. He's always will be Redeemer and Mediator. So the first thing God says is that He sees this darkness, and He wants to speak life. So before creating human beings, He says, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and what did God have to do? He separated the light from the darkness, because why? He's redeeming creatively. 
That's Genesis 1. He takes what is formless and void, and he takes it and he puts life into it. He gives it form. He gives it order. He takes the matter, puts it together, and he says, let there be light. If you understand Genesis 1, you'll understand John 1. Now take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John, working off of Genesis 1 as his background, he takes what was physical and he spiritualizes it because you're going to see that all things that God creates are both physical and spiritual. So John answers the question of who is Jesus Christ with the backdrop of Genesis 1. And today we're going to see three realities about Jesus Christ, and next week we'll see another three. Three realities. Today we're going to see one, he is the revelation of God. Two, he is the eternal son of God. Three, he's the mediator of all creation. And next week we'll also see that he's the mediator of the new creation. Okay, so point number one, the first reality we see is that Jesus is the revelation of God. And so now we're in John 1, and it sounds very familiar to Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So why does John, so before we talk about the beginning, why does John refer to Christ as the Word? To me, that's a little weird, right? Why do you refer to a person as the Word? Now, there are several reasons. Let's begin with the most practical. One reason is because God reveals himself through words. The only way that you can really know someone is through their words, either written or spoken. So someone can perform an action. So you can notice that a certain person, a neighbor, drives the same car every single day to work, that they, that they have to pack their kids into the car or something like that. You can know something about them, that they're always carrying maybe a, a mug of a, a a tumbler with, you, you might assume there's coffee in there, but maybe not. Maybe they're driving with whiskey and that's bad. I mean, you don't know, right? You can only assume. When you look at someone's appearance, even though you can observe them each and every day, you can only know so much about them. You can only infer why a person acts a certain way, why there's certain patterns. But until they speak, until they express themselves through words, you cannot fully know them. And so throughout the Bible, God reveals himself through prophets, through speech, through speaking directly to certain leaders in the Old Testament. God reveals himself through speech and through writing. In essence, he reveals himself how? Through his word. Now the word has become flesh. That is the embodiment of the word of God is contained in Christ, and Christ is the perfect revelation of God. So when Jesus comes... It is the best revelation. So prior to Jesus coming, it's just word. Maybe some actions, but how do you know that the action is attributed to God? It's because through a prophet or through speech, he communicates. But when Jesus comes, Jesus perfectly reveals the word of God. He's the best candidate because he is God. He's the son of God. That's what John is saying. So there's a second reason why John refers to Jesus as the word. Notice that John doesn't have to explain the concept of the word, okay? 
So he doesn't have to do what I'm doing to you today, right? John doesn't have to say Jesus is the word, and here's why we use the Greek word logos, and logos means this. He doesn't have to do that. The reason why John doesn't have to explain the concept of the word is because when I say to you Kobe, you know I'm not talking about beef. Come on, we're in Los Angeles, right? Okay, so if I say Kobe, I'm talking about the beloved superstar that passed away from the Los Angeles Lakers. 60 years from now, someone says that, they might have to explain. I don't have to explain that, okay? In the same way, the word logos was so familiar to John's audience. The Greek word logos was widely used in ancient times, and Greek philosophy used it in many ways to refer to self-existence. Different schools would say it's the internal idea or philosophical thought. I'm not going to get into all the nuances of how the Greeks used the word logos. You're already falling asleep. I don't want to further accelerate that. But what's most important is how Judaism understood the word logos. In Judaism, that is the Jewish faith in the time of Jesus, they referred to the logos as God's powerful self-expression or his powerful revelation, which includes creation. Creation was one way that God revealed himself. Basically, the self-expression of God was understood in Judaism with the term the logos. So here John, he is saying that Christ is the perfect self-expression of God because Christ is God. Christ is the source of all things internal and external. He's the source of all things physical and spiritual. All creation was made through him. Now, if you want to understand logos in a secular sense, the word logos, Tim Keller explains this really well. I'm just paraphrasing from him, not directly quoting him. But Tim Keller expra- explains that the Greek word logos is where we get logic. Logic is how you make sense of things. And if you want to understand that, that yes, you can translate that over and say, Jesus Christ is the person who makes logos or logic make sense. When you have Christ, He helps you make sense of life, the meaning of life, the meaning of existence, the meaning of thought, the meaning of spirituality. The logos is Christ in every single way. So the word logos conveys that Jesus is the revelation of God. That's the first reality we see from this passage. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He is the preexistent Son of God. And this leads us to the second reality. Point number two is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Go back to John 1, verse 1. Notice the words once again, in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word. Notice that it doesn't say in the beginning the Word was born or created. Just as it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word existed. He just existed. In the beginning was the Word. John 1, 14, which we'll see next week, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh. So we know that John is very clearly talking about Jesus Christ. And then it says, and the Word was with God. Now, John makes it really clear that you have two distinct persons. Now, there's a heresy called modalism, and you see this heresy in 
the denomination, let's not call it a Christian denomination, in a cult called Oneness Pentecostalism. And in Oneness Pentecostalism, T.D. Jakes is, is part of this cult. Uh, they believe that there's one God that morphs into three persons. So the Father, when He wants to, He'll become the Son. And when the Son wants to become the Spirit, will take on spirit form. And when the Son goes back to heaven, He's the Father again. It's basically no trinity. It's one God that can go three ways. Okay? And John introduces us to Trinitarian doctrine. And he teaches us that this is not the case. If he simply said the Word was God, you can say Christ and the Father are the same. But he says the Word was with God. There are two distinct persons. There's Christ the Word and there's God the Father. Now just a side note. John does not introduce you to the Holy Spirit here, but in John chapters 14 to 16, he clearly teaches on the Holy Spirit. So in the book of John, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, three distinct persons, one Godhead. Now, and then once again, just to make it clear that Christ is not subordinate to God, he says once again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and it's very clear the Word was God, the deity of Christ. John 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. You see that? Two people, right? The Father and the one who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Christ has made the Father known to us. So John's point is very clear. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. It's October, but before you know it, the Reformation Day, things are going to come down. You guys call it Halloween? I call it Reformation Day. October 31st is actually Reformation Day. Uh, you know, this is a joke. I used to tell the youth kids that uh, this is not true, okay? Not, not a true statement, meaning what I'm saying I used to tell the youth kids, hey, Halloween is Satan's birthday, and they believed me. <laughs> I said, Halloween is Satan's birthday. It's not true, okay? That's just a way to tell them, like, calm down on Halloween, don't do evil. Uh, but, you know, Halloween is actually Reformation Day, All Saints Day, and that's how we celebrate it. So for Halloween, we ought to dress up as Martin Luther and John Calvin. <laughs> so, so have your kids dress up as Calvin and Luther and all, all the things of the Reformation, okay? But Christmas is going to come before you know it. And what John wants us to know is, instead of giving us a baby Jesus account, he's trying to tell you that Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. Instead, on Christmas Day, the eternal, pre-existent, eternal Son of God was born as a human being. He limited himself, became human flesh, became weak. I'll explain more of that next week. Right? He became weak so that he can die for us. He became killable so that he could be killed on our behalf for our sins and be raised again from the dead, right? So he took the form of a man. He was born, but that was not the beginning of his existence. Well, this leads us, if he was never created, this leads us to point number three. The third reality is Jesus is the mediator of all creation. And we see this in verses three to five. Jesus is the mediator of all creation. Now, under this third point, we have two subpoints that you will find on your outline. First, you see that Jesus is the mediator of physical and spiritual life. 
Jesus is the mediator of physical and spiritual life. But the second thing we're going to see is that Jesus is also the mediator of physical and spiritual light. So he is life and light. And John, he combines these concepts beautifully to tell you that without light, you don't have life. And, and, and without life, without true life, you're living in darkness. You're not living in light. So he combines these things. So verse 3, let's start in verse 3. Verse 3, John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we've already referenced Genesis 1 in the introduction to the sermon, but here in verse 3, John states explicitly that all things were created through Christ. This is the idea of agency, because it's a little weird, right? I mean, what do you mean all things were created through Christ? I, I thought God just spoke, let there be light, and there was light. What do you mean through Christ? We're talking about the idea of agency, that God the Father created all things through the agency of Christ. In other words, when God spoke, he was speaking through the person of Christ. That's why we can say Christ is the source of all life. Another term that better describes agency in a personified fashion is mediator. A mediator is a person who is in between two people. So you have God the Father and the human race. God the Father, the creator, the, the one who planned creation and his creation. And in between, there's a mediator, Christ, of whom all things happen. That, that totally makes sense. You want to go to the Father, you go through Christ. I mean, you go through Christ to the Father. Father wants to come through you. He goes through Christ to get to you. Christ is the mediator of the first Genesis. Colossians 1 makes this even more clear. John and Paul agreed. Colossians 1.16, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to refer to it. Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him, referring to Christ, all things were created both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And for him. Hebrews 1.2 says that it was through Christ that God made the world. So it makes total sense, this whole idea of 1st Genesis, 2nd Genesis. It makes total sense that if all things were created through Christ, then all things must be recreated through Christ. If all things are born through Christ, all things must be reborn through Christ. If all things came through Christ and things fell, then things must be redeemed through Christ. If all things were made new originally, through Christ, then all things must be renewed through Christ. The very same mediator has to come back to recreate, to renew. The person who generated the first Genesis must regenerate those who are fallen. So you will see Jesus' teaching very early on, like I mentioned, that we must be born again. Next in our passage in John 1.3, when John says without him was not anything made that was made <clears throat> how many of you guys are love grammar how, how many of you guys love to read this is super annoying this is super annoying because you should just say without him was not anything that anything that was made that's it why does john say without him was not anything made that was made doesn't that sound repetitive to you guys but if you think deeper, John's not annoying. He's 
teaching you theology. You just got to read slowly. When I read the Bible, I tend to hurry sometimes. I want to get the meaning. John's saying, slow down and pay attention to God. Slow down and pay attention. You know what he's, what, what he's saying there? He says, without Christ was not anything made that was actually made. Meaning there are some things that exist that were never created. Light is an attribute of God. You might not see it as an attribute, but God is light. The light is not God, but light comes out of God. In him there's no darkness. Light is a symbol of God's holiness. Light, he says, let there be light. And light comes onto this dark earth. Light, we're not sure if it's ever created. Holiness was never created. It's an attribute to God. God's love was never created. Because if you have to create something, it cannot exist within yourself. These are attributes that have always existed with God. They were never created because God was never created. God's holiness, God's love, God's joy, God's peace. And then you begin to understand eternal life includes now experiencing God's peace and joy. There are things in this world that were never created. They are things that are directly attributed to God, and that would include Christ. Christ was never made. So without him was not anything made that was made. There are things in this world that were never made. They always existed with God, including true life. And so sometimes we think of life, we think of things that were just created. Life is bios, biology. The Greek word bios, that's not the word that John uses. Throughout his gospel, he uses zoe. Some people name their children Zoe. Zoe means life. It comes from the Greek word that's pronounced Zoe. Zoe means life. And Zoe is not bios. And so when it says in, in verse 4, when it says in him was Zoe, he says in him was life, not biological life that was generated, but life eternal, life that has always existed with God that was never created. And if you're connected to this eternal God, you will have this life. This is the life that is in Christ. This is the life that comes through Christ. This is the life that Christ offers. John makes it clear. It is zoe. It is the self-existent, self-generating, infinite life of Christ that he bestows upon us. We might call it spiritual life because you can't kill spiritual life. Okay, John 5 John chapter 5, verse 26 says, For as the Father has life, Zoe, in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life, Zoe, in himself. True life is not biological life, it's spiritual life. But here's another thing. Before biological life was ever generated, Christ existed. How did Christ exist? Prior to the first Christmas, Christ did not exist in human form, but he has always existed, which means if life comes from him, then there's a spiritual life that has existed. So spiritual life has always existed. Physical life has not always existed. What is going to go on forever is not your physical life. 
What's going to go on forever is your spiritual life. So your soul is either going to burn in hell, sadly, and I hope that's not the case for most of us, but if we turn to Christ and respond to the gospel, then our souls will live forever in eternity. That's the eternal life. It's not just that transaction of heaven and hell, but it is, again, that attribute. How do you know you have eternal life? Is that you're beginning to become more like Christ in peace and joy that it happens in you. Let me get to some application. Okay, I'll get you some application before we finish the sermon, just in case we don't finish the sermon today. Jesus is not offering us a problem-free life because a lot of the problems that we have internally are caused by external circumstances, biological issues, physical issues, physical trials, the external life. This world's fallen. And when we consider our spiritual lives, we have to see where the Spirit is working. The Spirit of God wants to transform how we think, how we feel, and that translates into how we live. That's the zoe, okay, how you think, how you feel, your soul, and that generates into how you live. I want you to just simply take the example of anxiety. We live in a world where we're constantly anxious, whether it's the pandemic or financial, the financial landscape of this world or the geopolitical spectrum or just life comes with constant anxiety, over-information, a life of hurry, a life of demand. Some of that is coupled in with fear. And of course, there's always other vices like greed and things that enslave you to the fallen world and the kingdom of darkness. But let's just take anxiety. A lot of times, our hearts can't help but to be filled with anxiety. And what Jesus offers us is not just heaven in the future, but peace and joy now internally. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to give you peace by removing physical illness. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you peace by making sure that the world is peaceful, right? Tell that to the persecuted church. Tell that to the Christians in Afghanistan. Instead, what he says is, I'm going to give you internal peace, peace where you can flourish even if externally the world is falling apart. And so I once heard one leader put it this way. I was listening to a sermon, and I just paraphrase. He says that there's two ways that people typically deal with anxiety. One, and this is so much of what I try to do, and I'm guilty of it, you try to control your life and fix all your problems so that you no longer have to worry about anything. You know, kind of like the good life is just life as equilibrium. So as one problem comes out, just get, get rid of that problem. Another problem comes out, I got to get rid of this problem. I, I'm tired of problems. Let's set, up, let's set up systems and structures and make sure that we can prevent all problems from coming up. Now, there's wisdom in preventing problems. You should be wise. But, what, but try that. That's, a, that's an impossible life. Imagine that. A life where you are not happy until all your problems go away. So first, you know, there's one physical element, and then there's another one, and then there's your children, and then there's a relational issue, and there's the issue of work, and then there's a... Then your neighbor's dog poops on your lawn. You know what? Right? There's constantly a problem. There's constantly a problem. So that's one way that people try to deal with life, is they try to control life so the problems won't arise. But that's not 
zoe. That's not the life that Christ offers. It doesn't say accept Jesus and he will fix your problems, but how many people see Christianity that way? Number two, the second way that people deal with anxiety is, and I think that this is where Jesus will work on us and bring to fruition, is that you come to accept that this world has fallen and that you're fallen and that the li- and life will be filled with problems. So rather than being enslaved by trying to control your problems and being overwhelmed by anxiety, you learn to find emotional and mental freedom in Christ. And you find Zoe. You find life in Christ. Where you find emotional and mental freedom where you're like Jesus. I'm starting to look at Jesus and I realize how much, how little I know. You know, he goes on the boat and I I know that we personify Jesus calming the storm as Jesus calming all the storms in your life and getting rid of all your problems. I know it's much deeper than that, but, but think about this. Jesus is sleeping on the boat and his disciples are, don't you care about us? We're going to die. And he's like, you don't understand. I'm going to die for you. What do you mean? I don't care for you. And Jesus is sleeping. He wakes up. He says, calm down. You have little faith. And he calms the storm. That's Jesus. He's not hurried. He's not over anxious. He knows there's problems. He created the world. Lazarus dies, right? Because Jesus, what, took his time? And Jesus like, okay, you know, hurry, hurry, hurry. Hurry up. You got to fix the problem. Lazarus is going to die. You got to hurry up. And Jesus is like, no, I think I know what I'm doing. He gets there and he raises Lazarus from the dead as an illustration. People are bothering Jesus. Jesus, you got to preach. You got to save people. You got to do this. You got to heal the sick. You got to rescue the poor. He cares about all that. But isn't it annoying if you're an efficient person? That Je- Where's Jesus? He's up on that mountain. It's so annoying. What is he doing? He's praying with his father. He's withdrawing from the busyness, withdrawing from the mission. Not really withdrawing from the mission, but it seems like it. He's stepping away from busyness to what? To spend time with God. He's not rushed. He's not hurried. He's not over anxious. And his disciples don't understand this. He's not in a rush to usher in his kingdom either apart from God's timeline. You want to find freedom in Christ, you follow Christ. You look deeper into these stories and you learn to listen. Wow, Jesus, I know about you. I understand the whole transaction of forgiveness of sin, but I'm living such a hurried life. I I really don't understand this storm passage. But how many of you guys, if we were to preach on that, you'd be like, ah, I've heard this a million times. He gets up and calms the storms. Thanks, I'm going to check ESPN now. Because we fail to pay attention to God and go deeper, right? That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do with our hearts. That rather than anxiety, He fills us. And actually, actually, When you are deep into Christ and filled with the Spirit, you are actually in a much better disposition to tackle the problems of life. So that's where you begin to understand, I find my peace, I find my mental and emotional freedom 
in Christ and not having to deal with problems. And I'm okay with problems around me. I'm not ignorant to it. But now I'm going to try my best to tackle the problems peacefully, one at a time. But if I can't, I trust God and I know that he's good. And I realize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly, I want to speak to some of you who are much older and wiser. What, I'm say, what I just said, that was for younger millennials and Gen Z, right? Anxiety is an all-time high. Mental illness is an all-time high. Emotional fortitude and stress is an all-time high. But those of you, especially those of you with immigrant grit, you know life is hard. I don't have to tell you that. You already know you can't fix all the problems in life. You already understand your body is getting weaker and weaker, and, and you know that. So you don't get as shaken. And you read your Bible, and you love Jesus, and you follow him. But what Jesus wants to give you is zoe. He wants to transform your inner life from a life of regret to a life of resting in Christ. Resting in Christ rather than regret. He doesn't come to give you bios. He's not trying to make you, you younger. But I think when you get a little older and you start to reflect, you start to say, man, if I can only do this better, if I only strengthen this relationship, if I only took these steps, if I only did this when I was 40 or when I was 30, if I made these decisions, maybe life would be a little better. And Jesus is saying, free yourself. My yoke is easy. Whatever burdens, your sins, whatever is bearing down on you, you don't want to age with regrets. He wants to offer you rest for the rest of your life. He wants to offer you rest internally for the rest of your life. And so you can fill in the blank, whatever regret you have. When Jesus gives you true life, he doesn't come to restore your bios. He comes to give you zoe, your inner life. And while your body is getting weaker, your memory is actually going to begin to fade. It's okay. You start to forget things. You start to say, oh, what's your name again? Oh, I, I forgot. You know, I, I forgot about that. And you start to slow down and you realize, wow, my life is Christ. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to spend your days whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40 years, going deep into the Word and allow the Word to become flesh in you. Because when the Word becomes flesh, it's not just outward behavior. The Lord Jesus, sometimes, you know, we spend the first 20 years of our Christian life trying to fix the external things because those are the things that stand out. Do you realize that? So if you cuss a lot, because, you know, like I used to cuss a lot, cuss all the time um, as a teenager, as a college student, love uh, Tupac, favorite movie. I stopped watching movies. I think after, I, I, it's not a sin to watch movies. I just don't get interested. Favorite movie of all time is Friday with Chris Tucker and Ice Cube. So of course, I'm cussing all the time. So, so I'm in my, in my immaturity. I'm a Christian now. The goal is to stop cussing. The, and then, okay, the goal is to stop getting angry. The goal is to stop doing this. The goal is that when people foul me, don't punch them. You know, the goal is to stop this and this and this, right? And then you don't deal with the deeper issues, control, pride. And then so, so then, you know, 20 years into your Christian life, you start dealing with the roots. You have to reach 40 to 50 to realize, wow, there's some more stuff that Jesus wants to do. 
But it just makes sense that as you get older, God begins to say, hey, the word has become flesh, but, you, but I want to work on this part of your heart. I want you to, to die in peace and joy. I want you to have contentment that this world cannot offer. I want you to finally realize that Christ in me is to live and to die is to gain. I want you to realize how you can find joy in the midst of bodily suffering and worldly suffering. That's what Christ wants to offer. I have to wrap this up here, so I'm going to save B for next week, okay? So in terms of Jesus being the mediator of all physical and spiritual light, we will save that for next week, but let me give you the big idea. Big idea of this morning's message for both sermons is Jesus Christ, the divine mediator of the first Genesis, revealed himself in human flesh to mediate a new Genesis. If you don't have Christ, I beg you to receive Christ this morning. And if you do have Christ, I beg you to believe that he's not done with you and he wants to continue to work on your heart starting now. Let me pray for us. Pray with me. Father, we come before your word. And Lord, we live in a world driven by anxiety. We live in a world where there's physical suffering, physical ailments. We live in a world of uncertainty. But you've given us your word in the person of Jesus Christ. And you've given us a clear explanation of who Christ is throughout 66 books of the Bible. Help us, Lord, to not just grow deep in the knowledge of biblical truth, but help us to grow deep in the capital W-O-R-D, the Word. Help us to grow deep in Christ. Lord, I do pray that if there's anybody in here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, or even those who want to rededicate their lives to you, that you would do the efficacious work of redemption in their hearts now. Draw them to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.